You are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Wednesday, February 24th, 2021. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. Right after the latest NPR News headlines, we'll have the California Report from KQED Public Radio. Then, Felton Pruitt talks to the County Council for Nevada County about the status of a lawsuit filed against the state and county by some local restaurant owners. For their generous support of KVMR, we thank Milkman Toner Company, providing local hometown service for network printers, copiers, and scanners, carrying environmentally safe, remanufactured toner cartridges with printer support, serving Northern California counties, also San Francisco to Lake Tahoe. MilkmanCompany.com. Here are the latest headlines from National Public Radio. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. The Biden administration says the pace of vaccinations is expected to increase in the coming days. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports nearly 45 million people in the U.S. have received at least one dose of the vaccine. According to the CDC, about 17 percent of the adult population in the U.S. has received at least one vaccine shot. Overall, about 1.4 million shots are being administered per day, down from the 1.7 million a day that that preceded last week's extreme weather delays. White House COVID-19 advisor Jeff Zients says he expects this to accelerate given a boost in doses shipped this week. We've increased the weekly allocation to to states, tribes, and territories up to 14.5 million which is up 70% from the 8.6 where we started. And retail pharmacies are now allocated 2 million doses a week. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. Many states say they won't wait for more federal help on coronavirus aid. Instead, they've been moving ahead with their own relief packages. In Michigan, Governor Gretchen Whitmer says the state is ninth nationwide for total vaccines administered and that the case rates remain among the lowest in the country. And she's also urging the state to pass its own COVID relief bill soon. We need the legislature to do their job and pass the COVID recovery plan so we can keep purchasing these critical antigen tests. We can't spend money to test people and ramp up vaccinations if we don't have it. The president's nearly $2 trillion relief plan would send hundreds of billions of dollars to state and local governments. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is sending 25 million washable cloth masks next month to low-income neighborhoods around the country hit hard by the coronavirus. They will be distributed through 1,300 community health centers and 60,000 food pantries nationwide. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy faced some tough questions from lawmakers about mail delays today. And here's Brian Naylor reports after he spoke, the Biden administration announced three nominees to fill vacancies on the Postal Board of Governors who, if confirmed, could vote to replace DeJoy. DeJoy apologized to postal customers whose mail, including Christmas cards and packages and bills, has been delayed in recent weeks. Above all, my message is that the status quo is acceptable to no one. 
because the solutions are within reach if we can agree to work together. DeJoy is working on a 10-year strategic plan to improve the agency. He also wants Congress to end a requirement that the Postal Service prepay the health and retirement benefits of its workers. Meanwhile, the Biden administration announced it is nominating three people to the Board of Governors, who would diversify the board, give it a Democratic majority, and possibly replace DeJoy. Brian Naylor, NPR News. This is NPR News. A Honduran man who has lived in a church outside St. Louis for the past three and a half years is now free to go outside. Alex Garcia stayed in the church to avoid deportation after the Trump administration slated him for removal from the U.S. in 2017. But the Biden administration says the Immigration and Customs Enforcement won't pursue Garcia for detention or removal. The sister of Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser died today of complications related to COVID-19. She was 64. NPR's Melissa Block has more. Mayor Bowser announced the death of her oldest sibling and her only sister, Mercia Bowser, of COVID-19-related pneumonia. She was a graduate of Fisk University. In a statement, the mayor said, quote, She joins the legion of angels who have gone home too soon due to the pandemic. Mayor Bowser announced her sister's death just hours after proclaiming a day of remembrance for lives lost to COVID-19, an acknowledgement of the fact that Washington, D.C. has now passed the milestone of 1,000 lives lost to COVID-19. Melissa Block, NPR News, Washington. Drunk and reckless driving charges against singer Bruce Springsteen have been dropped. Officials say his blood alcohol level after an incident in November was so low it didn't warrant charges. Springsteen did plead guilty to drinking alcohol in a closed area, the Gateway National Recreation Center known as Sandy Hook. The judge also fined him $500 plus court costs. Wall Street Hire by the Closing Bell. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. A national environmental group is suing the Newsom administration over what the group says is the illegal approval of thousands of oil and gas drilling permits in the state. With more, here's KQED's Ted Goldberg. The Center for Biological Diversity is filing a lawsuit against the California Geological Energy Management Division. The suit filed today in Alameda County Superior Court says CalGEM has consistently approved drilling permits without enough environmental review. The group notes that drilling can harm public health in nearby communities, pollute the environment, and lead to serious oil spills. The center wants a judge to stop the agency from issuing such permits unless it studies them more. CalGEM officials have yet to respond to the suit. They recently announced that they granted fewer oil well permits last year than the year before. The center's lawsuit comes a week after two state lawmakers proposed banning several drilling techniques in the coming years. For the California Report, I'm Ted Goldberg. And staying on energy and the environment, a new audit of California's top climate agency found regulators overstated reductions in the state's greenhouse gas emissions. KQED's Kevin Stark has the details. In a new report, California's auditor said the state is in danger of failing to meet its 2030 climate goal of reducing greenhouse gases by 40 percent. A key problem is that emissions from the transportation sector have increased in recent years. 
the state's Air Board is in charge of implementing climate policy, including managing incentives for electric vehicles to reduce planet-warming gases. But the agency is not gathering enough data about that program and doesn't know how the incentives are impacting Californians' consumer behavior, the report found. The Air Board says it will be making a range of recommendations to improve its climate accounting. For the California Report, I'm Kevin Stark. And a final energy-related story. Have you ever looked at your utility bill and thought to yourself, this seems awfully darn high? Well, a new report says many utility customers in California pay more, much more for their power compared to consumers around the nation. The California Report's Lily Jamali has the details. Lily? Hi, Saul. Well, PG&E, for one, charges 80% more than the national average. SoCal Edison charges 45% more. And San Diego Gas and Electric charges double. That's according to a report by the Energy Institute at Berkeley's Haas School of Business and the nonprofit Next10. It also found that the state's three investor-owned utilities charge customers two and sometimes as high as three times what it costs to produce and distribute power. This is rates are expected to rise even higher because of costs stemming from wildfires. This week, the utilities are taking questions on their wildfire mitigation plans at the State Public Utilities Commission. That's the California Report's Lily Jamali. Support for the California Report comes from Water Heaters Only, specializing in the repair and replacement of water heaters since 1968. Licensed and insured, open 24 hours a day every day. Learn more at waterheatersonly.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone everywhere. And Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. With the death Monday of Lawrence Ferlinghetti at the age of 101, San Francisco has lost a figure synonymous with more than a half century of the city's cultural history. Ferlinghetti was so many things, a poet, publisher, political provocateur, and champion of generations of avant-garde and outsider artists going back to the days of the Beats. In 1953, he also co-founded San Francisco's beloved City Lights Bookstore. To learn more about Lawrence Ferlinghetti and his legacy, I talked to KQED arts and culture reporter Chloe Veltman. There's so much to say, but basically Lawrence Ferlinghetti is a great icon of the American literary landscape and has a global influence for a number of reasons. I mean, the first thing he did when he came to San Francisco in the early 1950s is that he completely reinvented the way books were made and the way books are sold. The first thing is that uh, he was into publishing paperbacks at a time when hardback books were really, you know, the main thing to do. and, And the only books that were published in paperbacks were sort of trashy books and he changed that and he also took a look around and he saw an opportunity to improve bookstores. When I arrived in San Francisco there were downtown bookstores that closed at 5 p.m. on Fridays and weren't open on the weekends so the whole idea of City Lights was to furnish a locus for the literary community. He got into trouble for publishing the poem How by Allen Ginsberg. It had some references to homosexuality in there. And um, he was arrested in 1957 on these obscenity charges. And eventually, though, the charges were dropped. And that set an important precedent for reduced censorship in the publishing world. And just remind us about his importance to helping to cultivate the avant-garde art scene in San Francisco going back to the early 1950s. 
Sure. Well, in addition to making bookstores very much community hangout places, he also was provided a hub for great up-and-coming literary figures to come and hang out and to share ideas. People like Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac and the Beat Poets. That whole scene bubbled up around Ferlinghetti and the City Lights bookstore, which he opened with uh, Peter Martin in 1953 in uh, North Beach in San Francisco. Do you think that Ferlinghetti kind of is is representative of a kind of San Francisco that's largely vanished, is vanishing. Well, Lawrence Ferlinghetti is very much a critic of fast, onrushing technological development that's inhuman. He has um, this word that he uses, he calls it autogeddon, and it's basically a, a critique of how fast society has changed. And he says, not for the better. I asked him about this when I interviewed him for his 100th birthday nearly two years ago, and this is what he had to say about it. Autogeddon is sweeping the country, and there's no stopping it. Yes, there's things that can be done, but they would be revolutionary, and the United States isn't ready for revolution. So in many ways, Lawrence Ferlinghetti's vision for what San Francisco ought to be somewhat differs from what it actually is. I mean, here today, we're very much a city that is fueled by the technology industry and, and all the things that come with that. But, you know, there are still glimmers in San Francisco of this world of Ferlinghetti. It's just much harder to find them today. All right. That is KQED's Chloe Veltman talking about the passing of San Francisco literary giant Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Chloe, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Saul, for having me. And that is the California Report for Wednesday, February 24th, a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. In the regional weather forecast, breezy north to east winds through Thursday morning, mild and dry weather expected Thursday into Friday. Breezy conditions return Saturday into Sunday morning. Light mountain snow showers are possible this weekend. In Nevada City and Grass Valley, clear tonight with an overnight low of 40 degrees, mostly sunny Thursday with a high of 60 degrees and a low of 42. A similar dry weather pattern is expected to persist for the next week. Tonight in Truckee, clear with an overnight low of 11 degrees. Thursday in Truckee, some clouds in the morning giving way to mostly sunny skies in the afternoon, with an expected high of 48 degrees and a low of 17. In Sacramento, clear and windy tonight with occasional winds over 40 miles per hour and an overnight low of 41 degrees. Wind diminishing after midnight. Thursday in Sacramento, mostly sunny with a high of 68 degrees and a low of 41. Late Tuesday, Nevada County Public Health announced that it has a new standby vaccination list for the Whispering Pines Vaccine Clinic in Grass Valley. The standby list is for people ages 65 and older and those who work in health care, food and agriculture, education and child care, and emergency services. You can sign up for the standby list on the My Nevada County website or by calling 211 or 833-DIAL-211. Even if you sign up online, all standby appointments will be made by phone. If you miss the call, you'll miss the vaccine. These appointments are same day and may require you to show up in as little as 15 minutes. The county says it wants to make sure that no dose of COVID-19 vaccine goes to waste. 
If you are offered the vaccine elsewhere, the county says, take it. The county's coronavirus dashboard indicated late Tuesday an additional 10 new cases on Tuesday for a total of 370 active cases. And remember, you can get your questions about the vaccine and coronavirus answered in real time during UBANET's Vaccine Town Hall, which takes place via Zoom at noon every Thursday. The Nevada County Office of Emergency Services has announced a new pilot project meant to help reduce panic and chaos and save time during emergency evacuations. The project involves dividing Nevada County into geographic zones based on factors that could affect residents' ability to evacuate in an emergency. It will take into consideration population density, topography, and the number of escape routes out of neighborhoods. The county says using pre-built evacuation zones will help emergency managers quickly determine the areas needing to be evacuated or warned and get the word out to affected residents. For the project, the county has partnered with Zonehaven, a private software developer specializing in zone-based evacuation planning. The initiative is also a collaboration among county law enforcement and fire departments, as well as CAL FIRE, the CHP, State Parks, Forest Service, and Bureau of Land Management. Nevada County OES hopes to implement and share the new system with a Know Your Zone publicity campaign by early summer. If you're driving down Highway 49 Thursday, make a note. Caltrans says that traffic signal work at the Wolf and Comby Road intersection is likely to cause delays between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. Thursday due to installation and activation of a new traffic signal at the intersection. A local film about the proposal to reopen the Idaho-Maryland mine will be screened at 6 p.m. Thursday. The online screening of Rise Beyond Gold will feature a panel discussion with the filmmaker and representatives from the Sierra Fund and Community Environmental Advocates Foundation. The panel will also take audience questions. Register for the event at minewatchnc.org events. Next up, Felton Pruitt speaks with Kit Elliott, County Counsel for Nevada County, to break down the specifics of a potentially costly lawsuit brought by some restaurant owners against the state, the county, and several county employees. We're talking with Kit Elliott, the Nevada County Counsel. As many of you know, we're in a COVID-19 pandemic for the last year or so. And because of that, the state and county have issued certain regulations for businesses, and some of the businesses have found them to be too restrictive and are filing a lawsuit against the state and certain members of the county. So that's why I thought we'd talk with you, Kit, about some of these lawsuits and how they're affecting the operations and how our county can move forward with this and whether this is going to be very costly to our county. And I know this is ongoing litigation, so you can't speak to everything. So we'll just ask you to speak to what you can speak to. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. First of all, I'd like to correct the statement that we've got county regulations. We do not have any county regulations. We are only trying to enforce state law, state orders, state health orders. And we we do not have any separate orders uh, distinct and apart from the state orders. Okay. 
many counties did do that. We have not done that. I see. So if it's just the state handing down these orders, how does the jurisdiction then go? The state says restaurants need to stay closed at a certain time uh, with indoor dining, no indoor dining for restaurants. Then each county then adapts that order to however they want to enforce it. How does that work? Right. So we have the state, uh, the governor's order, and the governor's order basically was that the counties are to follow the state health officer's orders, and so those orders, as you're aware, set out sort of what we should do in terms of gatherings of persons. Of course, one of the things that it restricts is gathering in restaurants, and so there is very specific law in terms of why the governor's order is something that we're mandated to follow, how it does become state law. And, of course, in the lawsuit, not only is the county named, but also uh, the governor and the state health officer. Also named in the lawsuit are individuals that are uh, carrying out the orders of their job, the duties of their job, such as you, such as Amy Irani, the county health department director. The board of supervisors are each named in the lawsuits individually, as well as the board of supervisors. This is a unique approach. Yes, it is. And so usually you would perhaps name the county if you're going to name them. Uh, They named, uh, again, the governor, the attorney general, the state health and human services agency. There's several persons in the state. And then instead of just naming the county, they named the board of supervisors in their official capacity. They named Richard Johnson, our prior public health officer in his official role, and Amy Irani and myself, not only in our official roles, but they named Amy and I individually and are suing us, each of us personally, for a million and a half dollars worth of damages. I'm looking at the, uh, the document here. It's brought by Tuck's Restaurant and Bar and their owners, the Nevada County Restaurant Coalition, And uh, there's another plaintiff in here as well, isn't there? So I've got uh, Buckman Enterprises and uh, Robin Buckman as well. Can you tell us who are the Nevada County Restaurant Coalition? Who's part of that? So that's not completely clear. Uh, There is a group that's online. Um, Certainly nothing that's been sent to us has listed those individuals. And just watching things in the newspaper, it appears one of the restaurants was not aware of this lawsuit and therefore disassociated. I am not sure one way or the other whether the attorney, Stephen Bailey, sought the individual restaurant's permission or agreement to enter into this lawsuit. Like I said, I couldn't tell you one way or the other. Now, there's many other businesses that have been hurt by this COVID-19 pandemic and been forced to shutter their doors. Have there been any other groups of lawsuits coming from, say, gym owners or or hair salon owners that have been filed against the county? Not in our county. Let's say that the plaintiffs won, the restaurant associations won against the county of Nevada. How much would that cost each taxpayer that pays taxes in Nevada County if this lawsuit were to go through and be won by the plaintiffs? That, you know, again, so they can win the lawsuit. The issue in terms of cost to the county, of course, there are the attorney's fees for defending it. And even though we have an attorney representing us, 
my office assist in gathering all of the information to provide for discovery purposes. So you have a vast amount of staff time put into this as well. And then they're seeking damages. And so the damages would, again, depend on what the court would order. Us, the taxpayers, then, would have to foot that bill, not the individual lawsuits against the individuals, but the, the lawsuits against the county. Us, the taxpayers, would have to foot that bill. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. It's all government money. So what we have is a situation where business owners are suing the county because they're not happy with what the county's trying to do to protect the citizens of the county. That would be your description, but yes, that appears to be what they're doing. And I, just a comment, and that is something that's very important, and that is you, you've read through this, and one of the allegations is that we are picking on these individual restaurants over others. And I will tell you that everything we do in the county in terms of code enforcement and now through the Environmental Health Department, it is completely complaint-driven. So we have received numerous complaints about individual restaurants. Many of those complaints have come from other restaurants who are complying at great cost to themselves. And so, you know, it's basically an unfair business practice when you have one restaurant that's not complying with the rules and allowing people to come inside when that's not allowed, and others are having to try and help, you know, have people outside when it's cold. Um, so that is that was the whole motivation behind this, and the other motivation was to assist the restaurants in protecting themselves because if they have a plan. Uh, that they are complying with uh, in terms of getting sued, say, by a public member uh, for getting sick and coming back to the restaurant, that would actually protect the restaurant. So this was originally the whole process was started to help and protect the restaurants from lawsuits from others. All right. Well, we've got a March 5th motion to dismiss, so uh, things may go away after that, or what happens after March 5th if you get the motion to dismiss? Uh, it depends on how much of the motion, you know, you can win parts of that motion and not the full I part, see. you know, the full motion. So um, I really won't know anything until I get the ruling from the court. Hopefully we can sit down and talk with you again uh, after March 5th and see what the current status is at that time. Okay. I'd be glad to give you any factual information. Very good. We've been talking with Kit Elliott. She's a Nevada County Council. Uh, we thank you for your time, Kit. Thank you. And as Nevada County continues to languish in the purple tier of COVID restrictions, we close today with a public comment from Tuesday's Board of Supervisors meeting, where a vocal group of Nevada County citizens took the opportunity to express their feelings about masks and restaurant restrictions. One local restaurant owner compared the Centers for Disease Control to World War II fascists. Hi, this is Valentina. And I am from Alta Sierra in Grass Valley, and I'm here to talk to you guys. I would like to bring into a picture the similarity between you guys and us. You're the generation that in 60s marched on the street for peace against war. You paved this moment today for us to do the same. Now it's our turn from a different generation than yours to see life differently. And I'm going to share with you my experience. 
1939, my grandparents witnessed when health department came out and said that Russian food has a deadly bug. Military came in, destroyed all the crops, cut all the fruit trees, destroyed every farm animal. And my grandma and grandpa lost seven children to starvation. They told me it's six million people died, but I Googled it, it actually were 20 million. So health department did this awful things in Germany to Jewish people and forced this division between people where friends are going against each other because they were feared of disease that didn't even exist. Happened in Russia, happened in all the European countries. I speak with all the Europeans. That's the same protocol happened by Mussolini in Italy, by Mao Zedong in China, by Nikolai Ceausescu in Romania, by Stalin in Russia, and now fascism came to America. That's the severity of it. And if you don't believe me, Google it. There are CDC's videos and look at the jackets they're wearing it is a nazi uniform just does not have swastika so please your quietness and your silence is allowing fascism to come into this country and i left russia for that reason and here i am today fighting the same communists that i left them for which i apologize i probably brought them with me which i did not intentionally do that so please do some research and listen to our immigrants because our families went through this. And I don't want to see my beautiful America taken away from me by fascists. And I'm not going to let that happen. Thank you. That's our newscast. Coming up next at 6.30, it's the latest edition of The Sages Among Us. Host Brian Buckley will interview Alex Ezel, Vice Principal at Grass Valley Charter School. And at 7 p.m., it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. You've been listening to the KVMR Evening News on KVMR in Nevada City. Now KVMR wants to listen to you. We want your opinion on how we can make KVMR even better. So do us a favor and take our brief listener survey today. You can find it online at kvmr.org survey. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza and airs at 6 p.m. every Monday through Friday. If you have an opinion you'd like to share, think about submitting a commentary to news at kvmr.org. Commentary guidelines can be found at the KVMR website under the News section.